Morning everyone. If you want to grab a seat, that would be great. So this morning, um, well, first of all, welcome. I'm Alex. Um, it's just really lovely to be able to speak uh, here to you this morning. Um, this week I'm going to continue our Living Out Loud series, which is all about living and sharing God's love in everyday ways. And through that series, we've been looking at Jesus and his encounters with different people and what we can learn from those encounters. And today I'm going to look at Jesus meeting a centurion and see what uh, we can learn from that. But before I do, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your presence in this room. I thank you for the wonderful worship we've just been part of. I thank you we have the privilege of worshiping with the angels in your presence. And I pray, Lord, speak through me today. And for everyone here, I pray, just let them hear something of your voice in what I say. And I pray your blessing on the rest of this morning. Amen. So, um, yeah, this week I'm going to look at an episode in Jesus' ministry, which is in the books of Matthew and in the books of Luke. And we're going to follow the description in the book of Matthew, starting at verse, chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came in, came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And then skipping to verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. Now, if you like a bit of theological reflection, you like a bit of kind of investigating the Bible, uh, just as a little aside, when I was looking at this, the story of Naaman and Elisha came up. Naaman, another soldier, foreign to the Jewish land, wanted to be healed, but he didn't have the faith that that could happen from a distance. Just put out there, put that out there if you want to have a look at that, reflect on it afterwards. I'm not going to go into that now, but I found that, I went down a big rabbit hole when I looked at that, and it was, I found it fascinating. So I'll leave that to you. But this one, um, what's the background to this story? If we could have the, oh, there would be a map up there. Um, so the background to this story is Jesus has just delivered the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous speeches of all time. And he's just delivered that. That would have taken probably several hours. Um, he's come down the mountain, and he's partway back, and a leper approaches him, kneels before him, 
and asks to be healed. And he heals him. So he's delivered the Sermon on the Mount. He heals a leper. He's probably pretty knackered. And then he comes into Capernaum and he's approached by a Roman soldier. And not just any Roman soldier. A, oh, there we are, yeah. So you can see the Church of Beatitudes. That's a modern day Google, Google Maps map. That's roughly where the Sermon on the Mount would have happened. And then Capernaum, he'd have walked down the mountain to Capernaum. So that's the route he was taking. And about halfway between the two, he'd have met the leper. So he comes into Capernaum and the centurion approaches him. And the centurion is not just any old Roman soldier. This is uh, the head of a hundred soldiers and known to be quite brutal. I mean, you look at that picture, relatively intimidating. They're known to be brutal, um, comes up to Jesus and initially this is not looking good. Stereotypically, a centurion was about, far, about as far from following Jesus as anyone could be. Romans oppressed the Jews. They took their money, they beat them up, crucified them, and the centurions were some of the most brutal. So this isn't looking great. But then, the centurion, who most would have feared and probably hated, asked Jesus to heal his servant. And then explains how much faith he has in Jesus. And Jesus was amazed by this faith. And this is the only time in the Bible Jesus expresses amazement at someone's faith. And it's to a Roman centurion. Someone who's meant to worship other gods, but he has faith in Jesus. And then Jesus heals the servant without even having to be there. And there are so many things I could pull from this passage. The most obvious being the faith aspect. And I'm not actually going to talk about that today. But if you do want to hear about that, um, there's a Lent podcast series, uh, which is fantastic. Lots of people, in, a few people in this room have, have done those, and they are great. I did one, and it came up on the, 20, the 16th of March, and that's all about the faith of the centurion. So if you want to look at that bit, I'll point you towards that. Today, I want to look at something different. I want to look at how Jesus saw the centurion. I want to focus on that that moment when Jesus was amazed in sight of what was quite a brutal looking guy. He didn't focus on the outward appearance or the stereotype. He saw something beautiful. He saw the man's faith. And this is something we see Jesus do time and time again. He saw something beautiful in the woman who touched his cloak. Most would have seen an unclean person who if they touched, they'd have been ceremonially unclean until evening, they'd have to wash their clothes, people avoided. But Jesus saw something beautiful, so much so he called her daughter. He saw a beautiful child of God. And he saw the centurion differently. And after he saw the beauty in him, he then showed great kindness by healing his servant. As Neil said last week, he didn't judge, he just showed simple kindness. Now, seeing beauty in people is something we all need to do. We need to put our Jesus glasses on. There we are, Jesus glasses. Um, to see the beauty in others sometimes. Particularly those we find difficult or couldn't ever imagine following Jesus. Our centurions. We all have people in our lives like this. Could be a relative, could be a person at work, 
Maybe it's a group of people, a people who have, in your opinion, made bad choices or live a lifestyle you don't agree with. Or maybe it's someone you've known for ages who just never shows any interest in Jesus. We all have our centurions. Who's yours? Now I'm going to let that question hang in the air for a little bit and talk about something completely different for a while. But bear with me. When I join things up, hopefully it'll all make sense. I'm going to talk about God's beauty. What is beauty? Beauty is something that lifts our minds and our spirit. And God is the ultimate beauty. He's the ultimate lifter of mind and spirit. He is the ultimate giver of hope and joy. Psalm 27 says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. When we stop to dwell in the Lord's presence, when we really allow ourselves to take it in, God's beauty is overwhelming. What he has done for us is stunning. He created all things, this earth, the whole universe, and all that's in it. He calls us sons and daughters. God, the creator of the entire universe, calls us sons and daughters, and he wants to be in relationship with us. That is amazing when you think about it. He gives us peace in the storm and joy amidst the pain. Even when we didn't want to know him, dead in our sins, he was running towards us, knocking at our door when we didn't want to answer. He died a brutal death for us to give us hope and freedom to set us free from shame and worry. And what about the cross? On the one hand, a horrendous picture of beauty, uh, brutality and injustice, but on the other, a picture of pure beauty, of sacrifice beyond comprehension, the ultimate picture of love. God's beautiful and his love for us is stunning. And when I really, really stop and dwell in his presence, when I have, when I pull aside the time aside and I, I sit in his presence in worship, in prayer, sometimes I can't help but be overwhelmed by God's holiness, his majesty, his beauty, and I can't put it into words. The closest I can get is that picture in Isaiah 6 that says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. When you combine this picture of God's majesty with the cross, there is a beauty that pierces the heart and dwells in the soul. God is beautiful. And all he created bears hallmarks of that beauty. And we will be drawn to different manifestations of this beauty. If we could have the next slide. Some of us might look at the night sky and marvel at it. When you can get out into the country, away from the light pollution, and you can see the billions of stars, it is overwhelming in its glory, and it gives you a sense of the 
sheer size of the universe and the fact that God made that it is stunning. For me, I love the ocean, the beach. Whenever I'm, that's the Gower in West Wales. We were there a couple of years ago. And I was just stunned by its beauty. Being able to look out at an expanse like that with the waves, the sand, that for me is stunning. And for some, it might be a newborn baby. There's very few things more beautiful than a newborn baby. The innocence, the purity, the complexity, the fact that I remember our oldest being born. The thing that utterly stunned me was the fact that nine months ago there was nothing and then nine months later there's a baby and somewhere in the middle God did something miraculous he knitted that baby together in Ruth's womb and it is beautiful and I haven't got the words stunning um, and at the top of the pile of beauty is us forget of that is us Genesis 1 tells us that God created us, all of us, in his image. And that means we have God's DNA pumping through our veins. We all have something of God's beauty in us, in our very core. This is our identity, sons and daughters of the living God, deeply loved and deeply beautiful. And we need to grasp hold of this identity in Christ. It's so important. The first thing I did when I took on leading the youth was to buy a poster saying what our identity in Christ is because I think it's of such paramount importance because with the knowledge of that, we can resist temptation, we can resist peer group pressure, we can resist the lies that culture might tell us and we can begin to see that identity in others. We are deeply loved, made for a purpose, children of God, formed in our mother's wombs by the creator of the universe, made in his image. We all have beauty in us. We all are beautiful creations. You, me, the person next to you, all of us. And when we put our Jesus glasses on, we begin to see things in full color. We begin to see the beauty in that person. We don't see the hazy black and white 2D version. We begin to see the beauty. Even the people you thought of when I asked who your centurion is. Question is, how do we do this? How do we actually put on these glasses, right? Because it's all very well for me to say, yeah, put your Jesus glasses on, but what does that mean practically? Well, I believe that prayer is the only long-lasting way to put on those glasses and see people for who they really are. You see, prayer and mission, whether that be to people 5,000 miles away or your next-door neighbor, are two sides of the same coin. I love the Pete Gregg quote that says, in prayer, we inhale as God breathes in his new life into us. And then in evangelism, we exhale to breathe God's life upon a dying world. We breathe in God's love for us through prayer and worship and breathe out God's love to others. James 2 tells us that faith without works is dead. What that means is that when we put our faith in God, when we allow his love into our hearts, we can't help but show that love to others. When we spend time in his presence, we breathe in God's forgiveness. We breathe in God's mercy, his majesty, his peace, his beauty. And we become so full, so enriched by God's love, it becomes impossible to hold it in. We have to share it. And the bonus is the Holy Spirit helps us. And there are so many examples of this in the Bible, in history, 
I'm just going to share a couple. I love the picture, the story of Peter and Cornelius, also a centurion. Peter was praying at home, like in this picture. He was praying and he had a dream. He fell asleep whilst praying. He had a dream. And in that dream, the Holy Spirit showed him a sheet full of animals, unclean animals, um, as was the Jewish understanding of the law. And in that dream, which he had three times, um, a voice tells him, there is nothing God has made that is impure. And, G and, and Peter realizes that, yes, it's about what one can eat, but it's more about people, that there are not um, impure people. And this moment is so important in the history of, of the Bible, in the history of faith, because this is the point when God's love goes out from just being with Jews to the whole world, when Peter has this, this vision. And so he prays. Holy Spirit shows him this picture. And then, about a day later, he finds himself in the home of Cornelius, another centurion. The Holy Spirit falls so powerfully, everyone in the house gets baptized. He prays, Holy Spirit shows him, he goes out, shares the love, and the trajectory of the Christian faith is changed forever. See, what happened there was that the Holy Spirit enabled him to see things differently, see things through God's eyes, through those Jesus glasses I was talking about. For the first time, he saw beauty, real beauty, God's beauty, in people who were not Jewish. But then bringing things a little forward, um, away from Bible times up to more recent times, I love the story of Jackie Pullinger. For those who haven't heard of her, Jackie Pullinger uh, is a lady who through prayer and a dream felt led by the Spirit to get on a boat at the age of 22 without much money or knowing where she was going to get off and then did the most extraordinary things. I could tell you what happens next, um, but actually there's someone in this room who has spent time with her who would be much better at saying that. So Judy, are you around somewhere? Hi. Um, I, I think saying spending time with her is a bit of an exaggeration. Um, I met her um, years and years ago. Um, the walled city was actually destroyed 30 years ago, so it was more than 30 years ago. I was in Hong Kong staying with um, my brother's mother-in-law and um, was very keen to go and meet Jackie Pullinger because I'd heard about her and read Chasing the Dragon and all that sort of thing. And if you don't know, by the way, Chasing the Dragons, her book about what happened when she arrived, it is absolutely extraordinary. Um, and what is also extraordinary is that her ministry um, that she established there was so successful that the Hong Kong government, when they were looking to put money into things like drug rehabilitation, chose her ministry above all the local stuff because it was the one that worked. Um, Anyway, that's just an aside. Um, so I, I, I can't remember. It's so long ago. It must be 40 years ago. Um, I can't remember how I managed to get in contact with her. Um, but I was told to come along and meet her and some other people outside the walled city. And she was going to take us in because she ran Bible studies in there. Now, this walled city place is gone now, but um, pretty pretty horrific. Um, what happened was that when the, um, when, when the Chinese gave 
sovereignty to Britain over Hong Kong and the Kowloon Peninsula after the Opium Wars. Um, there was this one little place which was a walled fort, Chinese fort, and they said you can have jurisdiction over all this area, but you can't have jurisdiction over that. This little fort, it's, it's not, it's about like, I know, a, a, a fraction of a square kilometer. And um, so what happened really was that the Chinese didn't bother to really, eventually didn't have any control over it, and the British didn't have any control of it because they had no right. So it was basically a completely lawless area. And as you could have seen from that picture, what happened was that this tiny walled city was built on and on and on and on, up and up and up and up. There were no building regulations, there was no sanitation. Um, there was literally no sanitation. I think there were two loos for 30,000 people. Um, they got their electricity by by hiking it off the public electrics outside. So they nicked it off, you know, so there were bare wires everywhere. There was, it was just horrific. And because it was lawless, um, quite literally, nobody had jurisdiction over it for the law. Uh, everything went, you know, there was, there was tremendous child prostitution, there was a lot of criminal gangs, the triads, I don't know if you've heard, were a very famous gang in those days. Um, everyone could hide out there because the police were really frightened of going in there. And if they did ever go in there, they have to go into a, in a huge group. So it's a pretty scary place. <laughs> and you wouldn't go in without going in with somebody. But this young girl went in. Um, she felt called to minister to the people in there. And she went in. She was a music student, a bit like me. She was a, an oboist from the Royal College of Music. She, was, she had no training or anything. She just got on a boat to ask God to tell her where to get off. So eventually she went into this walled city, started a Bible study. And um, so I went in with, with her and with some other people. And all I can remember is it was totally different from what I was expecting. I was expecting a sort of rather quaint walled city. And what, what it really is, is this horrific um, high-rise slum um, where there's so much building is that all, all the gaps closed in, closed in. So we were walking in and sometimes we had to walk in sideways because there wasn't even the width to go in. And um, the stink, I can't tell you, and the rats just freely walking around. And I, I looked up occasionally at side routes and there's somebody injecting themselves. I mean, it was just, really was pretty ghastly. So we got, we got to her little room where she had her Bible study. Um, but the, the thing that impacted me the most is that um, there, was, there were a couple of people there who were helping her on the sort of staff team. And I was with one of the guys who was absolutely delightful. I mean, he was, his face was so radiant. He was just so wonderful, this guy, and so uh, passionate about God. And um, so we were sort of leading the Bible study together with, with any punters that they could sort of draw in. Um, and I was just so struck by this man who was so alive and so full of love and so full of Jesus. And I remember asking afterwards, you know, who, who is this guy? Where does he come from? And uh, he was, I believe he was an ex-triad. He was a gang member who had raped and murdered. And he had been one of the people who had been struck by her message. And God had completely changed him. And it was just extraordinary that this sort of thing has, can happen and did happen, and I witnessed it. So um, I think it's just an example of what you were saying, Alex, of the power of 
our report to change people. Thank you so much, Judy. I find that just amazing. Her book, this book, um, Chasing the Dragon, has more examples, but that coming from Judy, who was actually there, I heard that story the other day, just blew me away. And it's just that sense that Jackie Pullinger was able to see through God's eyes, through those Jesus glasses, the beauty in people. Some of the most hardened criminals, um, drug, addict, drug addicts and dealers in the world. And she saw something different and she brought God's love, having seen that. Um, it is a breathtaking story. Now, if you find these kinds of things inspiring, these stories of people praying and then being sent around the world, I'd recommend these three books. These are three of my favorite. Um, the first one, Dirty Glory by Pete Gregg, is the story of 24-7 prayer, which is a prayer movement praying around the uh, clock all year. And it's a story of the different times God has uh, sent people around the world. And it, it, yeah, great book. The second one, Chasing the Dragon, is all about Jackie Pullinger that we've just heard. And the blue one, Gate Crashing, is all about uh, Brian Heasley and his family who got sent to Ibiza to bring God's love there through prayer. They all start in prayer and they all have people seeing others who are often looked down upon through God's eyes and bringing love. They are stunning books. Each and every one of them has made me cry, has made me laugh, and has made me want to go out there and just share God's love. I'd recommend those. Um, I am almost finished, but before I do, I want to mention a smaller, kind of more personal example of the Holy Spirit enabling me to see beauty in people. Uh, for a time, we lived in Australia, and whilst we were living there, I, I worked just in the kind of center of, of Sydney, and outside my office was Town Hall train station. And I'd get, come out of my office, go down uh, to the undergrounds and into this station in there. And I'd get on my train and, and go back home. And every day I'd pass people um, begging, normally on those two pillars, actually. I was lucky to find this picture because that's exactly where this took place. And they'd be sitting there begging. And this particular day, I had had a season of quite um, strong or quite um, extended prayer. We'd had a prayer room in our church at that time, and I'd had a really profound experience of, of God's presence just falling upon me. Um, so a time of quite strong prayer, and I, I came out of work this day, and I came down the steps and, and through to this concourse, and on that left-hand pillar, there was a guy sitting there. And I remember distinctly, he looked like he was in quite a mess, really. Um, I, by his look, I assumed he was probably, um, he'd been drinking a lot or taking something. He was very thin, um, just looked in a muddle. And where I'd normally walked past people like, sitting there and begging in that sort of state. In that moment, I remember very, very distinctly God showing me him as a baby, pure and in that moment loved. And then he said to me, you know, whatever's happened between then and now, he, he is still loved and beautiful. And that, that moment changed me. And I went over to him and I chatted with him and I bought him a donut or something and, and prayed for him. And in that prayer, I, I, I tried to speak some of those truths over him. And I remember him, him sobbing because of those truths. Because when you call out those truths of how loved people are, that they are 
knitted together in their mother's womb, made for a purpose. There is power in that. And if you can see other beauty in them as well, call that out. And it's taught me today, up in, you know, even now, when I encounter someone who I find difficult, who maybe I can't believe will come to Jesus, that picture of them as a baby, pure loved by someone and by God, it takes me, it enables me to see something different. And there is power in seeing that, but there's also huge power in calling that out, saying those truths, telling them that beauty. It can have a profound effect. So my question to you is, who is your centurion? Or who are your centurions? Who is it that you find difficult to love or difficult to believe they could ever come to Jesus? So if you like, um, if you've got a notes app on your phone, grab your phone, or if you've got, you put things on the fridge, can I ask you to write down those names somewhere of those, your centurion? When you've done that, let's maybe commit to praying for them. Praying for those people or that person this week, that God would show us the beauty in them and give us opportunity to share that beauty.